0: We've only got to cover about uh, 400 years or so. <laughs> Alright, so here's the first question, which will come up when I turn my. Okay. Why was an hourglass, you know, an egg time on steroids, uh, why was an hourglass found on many 18th century English pulpits? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> was it? A, to keep sermons from lasting for more than an hour. B, to keep sermons from lasting for less than an hour. C, to symbolise, like sands through the hourglass, such are the days of our lives. Um, the sands of life running out. Or D, Parliament had passed a law against having cocks in church buildings. Okay, so I've got A, B, C or D, make your choice. And we'll move on fairly quickly. Don't forget, please put your name on the top of your sheet. And no sharing answers in the front row, please. Um, Question two. What argument for the existence of God was advanced by William Paley in 1802? Was it, if there is a watch, there must be a watchmaker? B. If there is an egg, there must be an egg beater. C. If there is an egg, there must be a hen. (laughs) Or D. If there is a digestive system, food must exist. (laughs) (coughs) Question three. Hang on. on. I told you we'd go faster today. All you have to do is guess. (laughs) Okay, that means you're hanging on. Okay, approximately how many sermons did John Wesley preach? Was it A, 5,000, B, 10,000, C, 20,000, or D, 40,000? Approximately how many sermons did John Wesley preach? Lots, lots more, or even more lots. Okay, and the last question. 18th century evangelist George Whitfield was famous for his fervent sermons. What complaint was made after his first ever sermon? A. He had allegedly driven 15 people insane. <laughs> B. The congregation, who were mostly labourers, couldn't get their normal Sunday morning sleeping. C. Whitfield's voice flaked down the from the ceiling onto the congregation. Or D, 58 people came forward to be saved. They were all already members of the congregation. Okay. All All right, so make your choices, ladies and gentlemen, please. And Deborah will collect. If you move, again, pass them to the (coughs) right-hand, my right-hand side of the room, please. Um, Now... What I might do to save time is I'm going to continue. Um, because for some reason some of you, you know, are, are still seeking God over the answers to some of those questions and are taking longer time. So I'm going to continue and come back and give the answers at the end. Okay? Right. So, we left this um, when we were really approaching the, uh, the period uh, where Elizabeth took over in, in England. Now, a number of things happened in England... And people, a lot of people in England weren't satisfied that the changes in the church in England had, England had gone far enough. Um, Presbyterians emerged in this period, people who want governed, uh, to govern churches by eldership. The Puritans is the name we give to people who wanted things to change uh, in a more reformed direction, if you like. Uh, and you can see some of the requests there. They didn't like sport on Sundays. Um, they didn't like the priestly robes. They didn't like marriage rings, the things that they saw as either associated with paganism or Roman Catholicism. When a new king, uh, King James, came to the throne, because he'd come from Scotland, they thought, oh, great, he's going to be in our corner, but really he wasn't. um, Because he was hanging on to something called the the absolute authority of kings, the divine right of kings. And he saw Presbyterianism as a threat to that, which he'd seen in his native Scotland. Um, So they presented him with a big petition of all these things they wanted. The only thing that they got was something we know as the King James Bible today. They wanted a new translation of the Bible. The only reason they got that is the Bible most people were using up to that point was something called the Geneva Bible, and that had a, it was a bit like a study Bible. It had a lot of notes in the side of it, and that took things in a more Presbyterian direction. James wanted to get rid of that, so that's the reason why he was quite comfortable giving them a new translation of the Bible. Um, a lot of Presbyterians, oh, sorry, Puritans, had three choices. They could either try to stay in England, in the Church of England, and try to reform it from within. They could uh, leave the country, which a lot of them did, obviously, and went to America. Um, Or they could stay and be one of the dissenting groups, which later become denominations, but they don't really quite have that that status at this point. Um, Now, picture of Puritan family. Enter a period called the English Civil Wars, which are really interesting to us because this is part of the cusp of changing to the modern age, some of the things that happen in here. When James dies, his son Charles comes to the throne, and he's very much also in the divine right of kings area. I'm an absolute monarch, everyone has to do what I say. And he's also drawn to Roman Catholicism. Now by this stage a lot of people in England are very much trying to go down the reform direction. (laughs) And Parliament is like that. So you have a division between Parliament, which is more reformed, more Protestant, and the King, who's more Roman Catholic. This eventually becomes um, civil war, with a chap called Oliver Cromwell, um, essentially leading England for a few years as a republic. And then something really important happens here. Um, The country executes Charles I. Now, the, the reason they do that is really a, a, a major headspin, a reconceptualising of things. Charles, in this civil war, actually invites Scotland um, to, help in, to invade England to help him in his cause. And for the first time, people see that a monarch can be guilty of treason. Up until then, a monarch could never be guilty of treason. People would only be guilty of treason against the monarch. But now they've got a concept that the monarch can actually be a traitor to his or her own people. And so this is a a, a defining moment because one of the things that's happened um, that's Charles before they removed his (laughs) head. There are a few drawings around of him without his head, incidentally. um, So we're starting now to enter a new era around the 1649 50 period. A number of things are happening. Um, monarchs are no longer unchallenged. Now we saw in our previous sessions that because of the Reformation, people were starting to challenge the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And remember that church-state link had been so tight for a thousand years that really it was only a historically a very short period of time before people would move from questioning the authority of the Roman Catholic Church to questioning the authority of the state because they were so linked. And this happens dramatically in the case of Charles I, um, where they actually execute the king. Um, kings can be guilty of treason. Uh, we've commented So scripture is uh, for many becoming the new authority. People can take stands against popes, bishops, uh, the institution, church. And what this means is much more power is coming to uh, the individual. Now in the meantime, uh, in continental Europe there's been something called the Thirty Years' War, which Anyone want to guess how long that lasted? Okay, yeah. 1618 to 1648, well done. Um, Now, this was driven by a lot of religious differences, but you can imagine a a war that lasts for 30 years. A lot of bloodshed, bloodshed, and people basically collapse in a collective heap and say, look, we still hate you, we would still like to kill you, but we can't be bothered. It's too much effort. And so we have the start of a grudging, something that we are very familiar with in our age, toleration of different points of view. This is the the beginnings of it. And this is one of the reasons why this is where the modern age begins. Um, I actually might have to live in the same street with someone whose opinions I hate and I would like to kill them, but I'm not going to bother. It's too much work. So was this war essentially um, a religious war? Religion was one of the main motivations behind it, but as, as always, um, war gets, there's a lot of other motivations get, um, in with it, who especially. What this really means is that the church-state alliance effectively is dead uh, because you don't have a monolithic, you live in this country, this is our religion, and everyone is the same. We don't have that uniformity anymore. We are starting to have to think about living in a diverse society. And this allows a lot of the dissenting groups, the Quakers particularly, um, emerge at this particular point. Now having started, we're on a roll, challenging authority, challenging authority of the Roman Catholic Church, challenging authority of the Monarchs and the Governments. Let's keep going. Let's see what other authorities we can in fact challenge. And so a movement called the Enlightenment, which really kicks off in the, the very late 17th century particularly from 1700 onwards, uh, really starts questioning many other things, including Scripture itself. Uh, And this this era becomes noted for its emphasis on the importance of human reason. So whereas there are lots of, uh, or a number of possibilities, where where is our authority in life? Uh, What do we look to? Could be Scripture, could be the Church, could be reason, could be uh, a number of other things. Uh, Reason starts to be put on the throne very firmly at this time. And again, you can probably sense very much our modern age starting to emerge at this point. Anything that is deemed to be unreasonable in inverted commas gets discarded. Now, science flourishes in this particular environment, but a lot of religious issues get forced into this particular mold. So people, for example, would start in this period denying uh, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, miracles, etc. And starting to reinterpret uh, what they think the Bible is all about. So God starts to be repictured, something called deism. Now, um, people didn't immediately jettison the Christian faith, by any means. A lot of the, the people at the forefront of the Enlightenment were committed Christians, but the way they thought about God and their faith started to change. And gradually this this God of reason becomes something different from what we see in the Bible. So, um, here's an answer to one of our quiz questions, by the way. Um, So, people started to see God as not personally involved, but remote. So, someone who created, a bit like the (laughs) clockmaker, creates the clock, sets it going, and then goes off and sits on the Milky Way having a pina colada for a few thousand years. Um, So, not personally involved, not having much to do with his, his creation. So this moves very much onto uh, a human focus. Now, a lot of this changed the way church life was done. Church life and teaching became very formal. Countries like Germany that have been at the forefront of the Reformation suddenly started having sermons, for example, on... I don't know if you've preached this at any of your three churches, sermons on the correct way of wearing your hair as a Christian. Um, So, you've had those? Oh, excellent. A series. A series. Whoa, okay. Um, So, there was... We're like a... You know what a metronome metronome is? Yeah. Or the old Billy Joel song, We Go to Extremes. Okay, yeah. Okay, so people now start in, in some areas to swing back, and, and pietists were people who were responding against that formality, against uh, the deisms in personal God. And so they wanted, in fact, a religion of the heart. They wanted a religion that focused on the Bible, that was more evangelistic, uh, that emphasized conversion, and picked up really a, a number of uh, the themes of, of Puritanism. But Uh, really made more of a place for the laity, everyday people, to be involved in ministry. As part of this, they made a privileged place for uh, the emotions in religion. Now, in fact, they started to see the intellect as the enemy. Uh, One of the pietists famously said, the man who tries to understand God with his mind becomes an atheist. Um, So, can you understand God with your mind? No. No. does trying make you an atheist? Uh, no. Right. Um, so they moved completely away, metronome-like, in the other direction. Coming out of this is an era where we look at and discover a number of exciting evangelical awakenings on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. So, um, again, in the background of what's often a spiritually dry time, uh, apart from those Pietists and Puritans. And we have these names of people like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley who are really very active through the 1700s. And during this time, we can argue, I think, that that modern preaching is invented. Um, So if you've ever enjoyed a sermon, without going into too much detail, and I'm sure you've enjoyed sermons, um, it probably owes something to this guy Whitfield. And I I can't go to that for the sake of time, but um, you you do owe him a bit of thanks, I think. Now, whereas Whitfield was very much a, a travelling evangelist, Wesley, who was also a travelling evangelist inspired by Whitfield, uh, really had a, an organising capacity, and he had an innovative structure for spiritual growth and accountability, uh, class groups, uh, like home group stars. And this really, uh, for those of you who are, know the word evangelicalism, uh, an emphasis on personal response to God, conversion, the authority of the Bible, etc., and, and the centrality of Christ, <laughs> sacrifice, those four main points, really usually is seen as beginning at that particular point. A couple of pictures, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield okay, and John Wesley. All right. Now we hit something next called uh, Romanticism. And you can see, Romanticism is in many ways still with us. And I have to restrain myself here, as Andre knows, this is one of my favourite topics. Um, so you can applaud myself for restraint later. Um, but you can see, this really kicks in as a as a movement uh, in the in the wake of people like Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards, who were earlier in the 1700s. Uh, this is really a a formal response against rationalism and um, the Enlightenment. It's saying really, look, there is more to life than just a, a mental understanding of things. things. Other things are important to us, like you can't prove love in a laboratory, for example. Okay? So unlike rationalism, which wanted to solve all life's problems and understand absolutely everything, romanticism uh, was comfortable with mystery. It was comfortable with not necessarily knowing everything about everything. And then in its own way, that made more of a space for, um, for God to move in its thinking. This affects, again, all aspects of culture, society. You, you might have might, might know some uh, poets who operate in this area, for example. And eventually, the idea... So romantics are very comfortable with subjectivity. What do you feel about this? Um, that feelings actually are worth talking about, they're not just chemical responses. And eventually people came to th- realise that while we might want to be objective and perhaps see ourselves as objective as scientists or observers or something, actually in the act of observing things we're interpreting. We are a player in, in what we're observing, even if we don't really realise that we are. These are also the first, first moderns. Of that thought. We're going there. So, uh, as Matt said, is this the beginning of post-modernity? Uh, yeah, it really is. So, these guys are saying individual perception is value. Now, remember, you know, a, a few um, skits ago or presentations ago, we didn't like diversity, did we? We didn't like differences of opinion. Everything had to be the same. We wouldn't have any time for this sort of stuff, would we? Individual subjectivity, individual perception, that would be seen as at worst heresy. Um, or or at least an unwelcome diversity. Now, we're actually starting to welcome that. Um, And in fact, coming out of this, um, there's a a word some of you would certainly know, a word called existentialism, um, which is a way of looking at the world that says, basically, um, I can create my own value system completely. I'm really looking at creating my own reality. You can't judge me. Um, I make my own rules. And as I make my own rules and pursue my own life goals, I'm being authentic. You're allowed to do your, your life goals and pursue them, but don't try and tell me what to do because mine are different from yours. So this is really individualism, again, cranking up a few mm-hmm. nostrils. And you will all be, if you've never heard the word existentialism, you would actually be very familiar with how I just described it. Because it's very, very common. And it leads to um, into postmodernism. So as some people have said, Romanticism is, is the father of existentialism and the grandfather of postmodernism. We hit now uh, a very crowded century, the 19th. So we're sort of catching up to our great-great-grandparents perhaps when we're looking at our family truths. Um, there was a, a, one of the romantic poets of called Keats in Interpol Uh, His ode on a Grecian urn. Now, just sitting down and writing a piece of of poetry about a piece of poetry is in itself a romantic idea. Um, But at the end of this poem, um, the closing couplet goes something like, "Truth is beauty, beauty truth. That is all you know in life, and all you need to know." He's equating truth and beauty. Okay. So, and we all, you know, that saying, "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder." Okay. So, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. According to that. Truth is in the eye of the Mm -hmm. beholder. Are we starting to feel very modern? Mm -hmm. Yep. Keats was in the early 19th century. Okay. So uh, that's why we're saying this is um, quite modern. Okay. So we hit some major thinkers now um, that challenge the church in many ways. We hit Karl Marx. He says basically everything is explained by economics. We hit Charles Darwin. He says everything is explained by survival of the fittest. Uh, We hit Sigmund Freud who says everything is explained by the subconscious mind. And at the same time, in this 19th century, this is also the big missionary century. This is a century in which uh, the the Protestant countries gear up their missions efforts. Um, They run around Africa planting their flag. Africa gets divided up. Um, Asia gets taken over by European uh, powers. And the thing is, that brings the the Western powers into contact with a wide variety of different faiths and tribal religions, etc. that they now have to try to compute. At the same time, they're trying to understand Marx, Freud and Darwin. It, it's a, it's a, a test in time. Um, and... A couple of photos. Interestingly, I'm yet to find... Not that I've tried to look very hard. A photograph of Sig- Sigmund Freud, who's on the left, smiling. So I'm not quite sure what that says. Um, Okay, so the church responds in different ways to these challenges. Um, evangelicalism, which we mentioned earlier, makes really big gains through the 19th century on both sides of, of the Atlantic. There are, are revivals that are quite fascinating to look at in their own right, but basically millions of people get added to the churches in various ways. Um, it's also obviously a century in which the whole issue of slavery comes to the fore, and evangelicals, uh, William Wilberforce obviously, and others get involved Um, in that particular issue. Now, one of the interesting things that comes up um, is the rise of biblical theology. So the idea that um, if everything... try to capture this in two sentences. If we are all affected profoundly by our feelings and the world around us, which Romanticism says we are, then that would also, for example, apply to the Gospel writers. Um, And and they were writing those events of the Gospels some decades after they took place. So they have added all these layers of years of feeling and emotion. And and so basically, how do we really know we can understand uh, things the way they really were? So people start to reinterpret um, the key doctrines of the Church um, and really it becomes more of an exercise in many cases of, of, of literary criticism. Uh, perhaps, than, than theology. There's a whole world there, but just skating over the top of it. So, Protestants, some Protestants went down the, the path of liberal theology and reinterpreting the way the doctrines of the church were seen. Some became more fundamentalist um, and locked into, uh, which is a term that's not there until really the early 20th century, uh, locked into what had traditionally been taught and did, didn't really want to engage much with some of these challenging ideas. The Roman Catholics um, echoing the, the response of uh, the Council of Trent when they really locked in Aquinas, who'd been a theologian from 300 years before, uh, follow follow form. And in Vatican I uh, in the, the 1860s, they really locked in the Council of Trent from 300 years before and say, we refuse to engage with any of these modern ideas. We are the Church and we, we know the truth. So they were really rejecting engagement. This brings us really pretty close to 1900. One of the things that hits then is the Pentecostal movement followed by the Charismatic Movement. Now this happens uh, initially in America. It comes out of people who've had a background following Wesley. It comes out of people who believe that that speaking in tongues is going to be the the fulfilment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as they see in the Book of Acts. And that really starts uh, in in the middle of America, in Topeka, Kansas, in 1901, but kicks off with a a guy called William Seymour, who moves to Los Angeles, and in 1906, something called the Azusa Street Revival begins. Now, it was interesting that it it was very much a class thing for the first few decades. People would look down on Pentecostals and see them all as coming from the wrong side of the tracks, um, see them being uneducated, etc., that got a bit of a spin in 1959 when this guy Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopalian, which is you know, the American version of Anglican, highly educated, uh, etc., becomes charismatic and it goes on to be a major news story across the US. Um, you can't, actually, you, you can be Pentecostal or charismatic, you can't be both. Um, but ask me about that afterwards if you want. That's, that's the building where Azusa Street started doesn't exist anymore in, in Los Angeles. Okay, we're going to wrap up our story. Um, this is our last slide um, skating through the last couple of centuries. Looking at 1960s and touching on what Matt mentioned of, of postmodernism. So one of the things that happens in the 1960s, and we all would be aware that 1960s were an interesting uh, was an interesting decade. The generation before World War II those who survived, came back, married, had kids. Those kids became adults in the 1960s. Now, a lot of people have said really the death of modernity was was World War II because for 300 years, roughly, people had been worshipping science, education, technology, and the the idea was if you get enough science, enough education, enough technology will solve the world's problems. Um, In 1945, we figured we'd had 300 years of science, education, technology... And what we basically discovered was more efficient ways of killing each other on a large scale. There was a very disillusioned generation, uh, and their kids grew up, became adults in the 1960s, and so you have the whole hippie movement, flower power, you know, uh, reality is for people who can't handle drugs, that sort of thing. Um, and but you do, you also have the Jesus people, and suddenly a new openness to uh, spirituality in the wider sense of the word. Rationalists would, would have poo-pooed any idea of spirituality, and rationalism is still a key part of modernity. But now there's a new openness. Although we don't ditch rationalism completely, um, we don't certainly don't see ourselves as irrational, but there is now an openness to another area that cannot be just proved in a laboratory. Um, and so now, in some ways, we're back onto a similar footing that the early church was, where there was a, a smorgasbord of spiritualities out there. Uh, We're much more similar to that now, perhaps, than um, uh, say the monolithic approach of the Church in the Middle Ages. Uh, So the 1960s, you've got also the charismatic movement kicks in at that point. Vatican II, there's a renewal of the Roman Catholic Church, and there's a new openness there as well. And um, while you do have perhaps a growing respect for spiritualities and religious belief, there is this uh, this, this post uh, modern idea of going back to existentialism, we hate the idea of there being an overarching truth plan. Um, Christians say there is an overarching truth plan, uh, but society at large is averse to that and wants to push back on it. That pretty much brings us to where we are today so i 've been scaling through it. Um, Yeah, were there any questions on that? I'm aware there could probably be about 53,000 questions on that, but happy to take a few. Yes? Would you care to go on for the next 20 years? (laughs) No. Um, As one of my church history professors (laughs) said, technically, um, and and, and this is a nice way of of wiggling out of that sort of question, um, that uh, anything that's happened in the last 50 years really isn't history, it's sociology. We're still living it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> uh, all right, do we have a... We I mean, probably need a typewriter six people. Oh, six. Can we okay, we'll work that out Can um, we have the answers? In, a, in a minute. Oh, you no, the answers. I'll give you the answers. Okay, while oh, we're doing that. Um, go right to the right... Right, I won't go right back to the original slides. Um, question number one about the hourglass. The correct answer was, in mm-hmm. fact, B. To keep sermons from lasting for less than an hour. Yeah. I mean you guys don't think your preachers go for less than an hour, do you? You can get out of here for a sermon last lasts less than an hour. <laughs> okay. Tongue cheek. Alright. Question two argument for the existence of God by William Paley, which uh, I referred to the correct answer is A, if there is a watch, there must be a watchmaker. So that's that, that argument by design. Number three, how many sermons approximately did John Wesley preach? Uh, well, it is D. And it is forty thousand. Yeah. Um, he really can, well. He would have preached. He, they look at his conversion as being seventeen thirty-eight, but he would have preached before that. He dies in seventeen ninety-one. Um, if you if you do the maths, he preached about fifteen times a week um, over uh, over a fifty-year period. Something like that. So um, we we tend to let our, our pastors off a bit lighter than that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I am betting. I'm betting he creeps the same sermon more than once. <laughs> okay. Um, and the last one. 18th century evangelist George Whitfield. Why Why was? Why did they complain after his first sermon? It was in fact, A, he had allegedly driven 15 people insane. Okay. So I'll hand over now to Matt and we'll take you to the next yeah. bit. What we'll do is we will... Um, I'll figure out a couple of tiebreakers. Deborah will tell me who is... Uh, neck and neck on the front of this and we'll do a couple of tiebreakers and then sort everyone out after that at the end.